Atomic batteries to power. Turbines to speed. Roger. Ready to move out. Atomic batteries to power, Batman. <laughs> yes. Welcome back Mind. to um, Ray and Cam's Cold War show. Yes. With the demise recently of our Caesar show, we haven't spoken in two weeks. And uh, whilst I liked having a week off, yeah, um, I miss you, buddy. I miss the miss miss your happy little you know pixie face. Thank you. Yeah. And I miss what you provide. And I'm going to leave that right there. Um, but it, but you were missed. <laughs> you were missed. Parts of you. Parts. <laughs> right. The good parts. <clears throat> the good parts. My only good part. Um, so, uh, last time on this here uh, Cold War show, this is episode 227 uh, for the record, we, we saw that the Marshall Plan was the USA's way of buying their way into the European economy. For those of you who are uh, just joining us, right. we're talking about the creation of NATO at the moment, taking a break from the Korean War. Mm-hmm. We want anywhere. to talk about NATO. Right. Now, um, the Marshall Plan publicly... Yeah. It was and, and still is kind of thought of, referred to as an act of charity. But as we saw last time, privately, yeah. in the United States, in, yeah. in, the, in the thought leaders, in, in government, in business, they knew that it was serving the interests of the United States. The United States, after World War II, needed markets to sell their products to right. or else their own economy would fl- flounder, yeah. flubber. Tank again. Flummox. Yeah. Tank. Yeah. Um, and they also needed to keep those markets open to American capitalism. Yes. Um, yes. You know, having those markets end up in the Soviet trading bloc would not be good. So they needed a way of locking in as much of the world as possible into the American capitalist system, the, 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 the trading bloc. Right. And the Soviets, on the other hand, saw the Marshall Plan as a U.S. plot to control Europe. Right. To control the destiny of Europe, which in many ways it was. Yeah. Um, and the Soviets understood that at the time. You know, they sort of tried to warn Europe about it, but Europe didn't give a fuck. Like, Western Europe was like, motherfucker, are you going to give us $13 billion? <laughs> no, then shut the fuck up. Right. Well, that was the other part of it. Yes, America was going to do something that benefited itself, but it was going to be in the form of charity. charity. But you're right. Uh, Europe was like, yeah, we need something. Now, at first, we were thinking we need bucks to rebuild because there's very few buildings that don't have a bullet hole in it. But as we're going to find, and, and the reason we're doing this is because Europe wanted more than just money. They wanted security. They wanted physical, military, whatever security. And the Americans, because of our tradition, because of George Washington, were very reluctant. We're like, we will give you $13 billion. What we don't want to give you is any kind of promises. And so what we're going to see now is that the various sides are going to kind of almost like uh, boxers, uh, Squaring, you know, squaring up and, uh, and, and kind of testing each other. The British have an agenda. The French have an agenda. The Americans have an agenda. And they're going to go around and round, and each part is going to try to get what they want without giving up too much. But that's the game that's being played right now. And you, you throw in money. You throw in fear. You throw in security. And so it's a very interesting time for the Americans and for the, the Europeans as well. It was basically like... Uh, an open marriage or, a th- you know, a, a threesome. Um, yes. Everyone's trying to get what they want. Right. And yeah, they've got to give a little bit. 
too, but mostly you're just thinking about what you're going to get out of the three. Give a little you know, to get a little. Yeah, but America wanted it all. But but like you've said, ad nauseum, and it's absolutely true, America was one of the few, if not the only, undevastated uh, countries. Our economy was ready and roaring to go. None of our buildings were destroyed. Uh, the, we didn't have millions of deaths. We had tons of workers. We needed markets for them. And we see an opportunity. Is it cruel? Is it self-serving? Sure. But does everybody do it? Sure. Uh, if any, another country had the opportunity, would they do it? Absolutely. America is just um, taking advantage of this unique set of circumstances. And I wouldn't depict it as cruel Not necessarily. Cruel. Self-serving. But, uh, self-serving. Self-serving, sure. Yeah. But, uh, you know, all, all, most human acts of kindness are self-serving Minor. at one level or another. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Now, the Soviets weren't the only people who saw this as a plot for America to take over Europe. Right. Ernest Bevan, the UK's foreign minister, yeah. whispered to his private secretary during one of the foreign minister conferences in, I think it was 1947, mm-hmm. uh, this really is the birth of the Western bloc. Right. And he, so he yeah, sorry, understood. Ahead. Yeah, he Bevan is an interesting person. We don't have to go into him, but he literally brought himself up for nothing. Very intelligent, very driven. Uh, he was very imaginative, sometimes not great on the details. And he certainly knew when he couldn't control all the moving parts, but he had his own agenda. He wanted to bring the Americans in in a military fashion and yet control the overall narrative by being smarter than the Americans, but he's going up against the very stolid George Marshall, the uh, Secretary of State. So again, this is one of the many little contest battles, clashes, what, what have you, whatever you want to call it, within a larger scope. So again, everybody's out for themselves, but Bevan certainly has an idea of how he would like to see the next couple of years go. Mm. And he and his French counterpart, Georges Bidot, were trying to get, as you suggested, the US to agree to provide military support right. for Western Europe, uh, not just economic support, military support during peacetime. Yes, hard sell. And Marshall, for a variety of reasons at this stage, was non-committal. Mm-hmm. Um, but Bidot sent General Pierre Bilot. Uh, who was then the member of the French delegation um, to the UN right. to meet with the State Department uh, in the US and try and uh, negotiate some sort of a military arrangement, some sort of a military agreement. Mm-hmm. Again, as we said in the last show, you know, part of um, the US's uh, stipulations on the Marshall Plan money right. was, well, look, we're going to, if we give you this line of credit, you need to get rid of all of the socialists and communists out of your governments and yes. inside of your country. And the Europeans were like, well, that's easier said than done. We're going to need support in doing that. Um, yeah. By the way, you know, we have, you know, we've we got a very active um, socialist movements in our countries, mm-hmm. probably supported, they all thought at the time, probably incorrectly, supported by Moscow. Right. And, um, you know, we, we're going to need help defending this money that, that, that you're going to give us, defending our economies from these uh, uh, wily socialists. <laughs> but... Uh, General Bilot reported back to Bedeau that the Americans were surprised Mm -hmm. but pleased by the request. They were like, oh, you're inviting our army into your country during peacetime? Well, gee, let me see. (laughs) 
Let yeah. me see. You're it reminds a- me of the time the yeah. Spanish Bourbons invited Napoleon into their country Please. to lend a hand. Help us. They're like, yeah, yeah Napoleon, we, we, we don't know what we're doing. Yeah. You, you seem to know what you're doing. Would you come in and take over? It was like, if you insist, sure, yeah, yeah. sure, yeah, sure, sure. Oh, all right. Uh, let, let me let me see what I got going on next week. Oh, <laughs> look, I can fit you in. <laughs> Looks at his calendar. Eh, how about Tuesday? Tuesday afternoon, I'll come in with a bunch of troops. How's that? But yes. yeah, yeah. But but mm. again, the Americans are like, and yeah, they this- were like, you will you will yeah. give the country back to us later, oh, right? Oh, he was like, oh, details, oh, details. Oh, let's let's talk about the details later. That's a later <laughs> thing. This is a now yeah. thing. Let's focus on the here <laughs> and now. If there's one thing I've learned from history, it's you never want to think too hard about right. what comes next. Just just do yeah. the first thing that comes to your mind right. and worry about the consequences. That's, that's someone else's problem, well, consequences. It's, it's like a Roman making a plan. Step one, fine, I got it. Step two, we'll worry about step two later. Don't, don't, step one, don't, kill the guy. <laughs> step two, eh. What yeah. comes, what, come what may. But yeah. but yeah no but again uh, again George uh, George Washington uh, said yeah let's not get involved in military alliances when Europe America has been uh, observing that ever since George Washington was around but needs must times change and now the Americans are like well why should we give you thirteen billion if you're just going to lose your country to the communists so maybe we should do something. Yeah, there was there was a lot of work to be done with Congress, especially the Republicans. Yes. Obviously, it's a Democratic White House at the time yes. under Truman. The had been in the hands of the Democrats mm-hmm. for quite a long time right. at this stage, like uh, since w- when did... 33. When did 30? FDR? 30. I think 1930. 30, yeah. 30, 31. So, yeah, yeah, 30. So, um, you know, it, it's been a, uh, been a long... It's been a minute since the Republicans <laughs> had the White House, and... Uh, you know they're they're not all that uh, pleased with the idea of sending money or or lines of credit as it actually turned out to be right. to Europe. Um, now you know partly they're not in the White House, so they're going to criticise any plan that yes. comes out of the White House. Yes. That's just normal politics. Um, and it's somewhat surprising to me that the Republicans were fighting this. So I think. Yeah, I mean, you would think that the Republicans would have just as much interest in peacetime military Keynesianism yeah. as anyone. Yeah. It's a bit like, you know, with, with your recent midterm elections, mm-hmm. um, the Republicans were saying, well, if, you know, we take the House, yeah. we're, we're, we're going to put a stop on funding Ukraine. And I'm like, oh, really, are you, though? Because yeah. Can uh, you-, you have... You have constituents in your electorates that have as much riding on this yeah. as anybody. But they have to say things. You have to say right. things in order to win power. What you do once you're in power, oh, obviously, different. is is yeah. quite often different. Yeah, but I don't, also don't think the the, the business model here mm-hmm. uh, for investing in the European economy was very well understood. I mean, we can look back on it now and go, well, that was a brilliant strategic move yeah. to buy Europe, force them into the economic block, the American economic block. Um, you know, from where we stand today, that was a brilliant strategy and now one that China is trying to replicate with its Belt and Road initiatives around the world. Right. But back then, it, it hadn't been done before. If you, wanted to, yeah. if you wanted to take over a, a, a bunch of economies, mm-hmm. you basically invaded them Old and school. put up your flag and said, oh, motherfuckers, you're right. dealing with us now. Right. Going in with a checkbook instead of a cannon... Yes. 
was a new idea that right. hadn't. I mean, it had been you know throughout history, governments have given each other right. money in, in in terms of trying to buy loyalty or buy but, friendship or whatever. That but this that in and of itself is. But this is a completely different scale. Exactly. Right? Yeah. Yeah. You will literally drop all of your barriers. You will do what we say uh, politically, economically, uh, and you will thank us for it. I mean, you know, this is literally a bargain basement prices that we're getting Europe for. And again, it's, it is good for us. So, um, yeah, I, th- I think, the, and this is the uh, also in a, a presidential election year. We have to remember that uh, there are several powerful Republicans running. So you got to bitch about it. But yeah, they would probably stay the course if they had made it to the White House. Yeah. And as you pointed out, and I think this is, I, I need to remind myself mm-hmm. of this all the time, that you know, pre-World War II, America had been mostly isolationist. Yes. Um, did get involved in World War One, got involved imagine, in trying to fight the Bolsheviks. Yes. <laughs> but yeah, hard to imagine an America that tried to stay out of yeah. global affairs outside of its immediate, you know, right. the, Latin, yeah, America. Latin America and Hawaii and right. the Philippines and that kind of stuff. So, I mean, wasn't, Really isolationist, had invaded the Philippines and that kind of stuff, <laughs> part of the Spanish-American War right. and all that kind of jazz. But, yeah, yeah generally speaking, tried to stay out of Europe, mm-hmm. um, but ended up getting dragged in, and particularly after Pearl Harbor. Yeah. Uh, now that the World War was over, though, a lot of Americans thought, okay, well, it's time to leave Europe to its own affairs. Yeah. You know, yeah. they're they're they're. But I think a lot of Americans saw Europeans as sort of a little bit backwaterish, sure, um, with their nobility and their royal families, and they're like, "That's that yeah. is weird and old fashioned." Uh, we worship the Kennedys and the Bushes and the, the Trumps. The, the new you know, gods. We, yeah, the new gods. Yeah, yeah. not the old gods. Yeah, yeah. no, but yeah, but yeah. You, you bring up a good point. So, so. As, as we've said before, France has got its interests. It's got its main fears. Britain has its main fears. America has its concerns. But what Bevan is going to do is Bevan's going to talk to the French. Uh, Foreign Minister Bevan is going to talk to the French. And he's going to go, let's create a, uh, a, uh, a treaty or something between us. Well, we'll help you if something bad happens. But it doesn't really mean all that much unless we can bring the Americans in and they don't want to come in. So we have to ease them in. We have to tease them in. We have to dare I say, manipulate them in because they're kind of unwilling to do this. Uh, And so there's going to be times when the British and the French are going to work together brilliantly. There's going to be times when they almost sabotage each other um, because you have your own own national interests. But again, it is a game. Instead of uh, two people playing chess, it's at least three people playing chess and the Belgians and the uh, Dutch are going to get involved. So it gets convoluted very quickly. But uh, Europe feels that it needs America's military promise to help if anything happens. So somehow that's got to be worked out, along with the money. Mm. Mm. Now, you know, when we say Europe wanted America's help, I mean, mm. as we'll see as we go uh, forwards, like uh, Europe was divided. Not right. all Europeans right. wanted America's help. Yes. You know, we, we the way this often gets portrayed is... Um, you know, I've heard certain American friends of mine say, well, uh, these people wanted to be part of NATO. They wanted America involved. They asked us to get involved. Yeah, yeah, one group of them did. But there were lots of, 
there was lots of uh, uh, groups in Europe that didn't want America involved. They wanted yeah. to get closer to Russia. They had their own socialist, communist movements in these countries. Yes, um, that were you know, very strong. Mm-hmm. Uh, had a lot of public support. They weren't small. They were serious players, as we'll see. Um, but you know, you had the pro-American camp in, in these European countries and the pro-Russian camp, and right. they were they were fighting amongst each other. Oh, yes. But back to the average American, like I think, you know, with the whole buying of the European economy thing, you you can't, you can't really talk economics to the masses. Please don't. Right. Um, uh, You know, particularly uh, back then, today people are a little bit more aware. We've had, you know, post the 80s, um, Reagan era, you know, we, there's a lot more financial literacy, mm-hmm. I think, with the uh, post-internet, right. with people, you know, there's a lot more talk about, you know, the, the economy and the share market, that kind of stuff today in just mainstream media than there was 100 years ago. Mm-hmm. 100 years ago, it was very different. It was a very specialised thing, you right. know, you the, 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 the thinking about the economy and finances and that kind of stuff. Um, and, and you can't really say to the masses, look, the reason we're setting this money aside mm-hmm. that we could be spending on you Absolutely. and uh, on our own economy right. um, is, uh, you know, it's a long-term play. Yeah. We, we need to buy... We need to buy these markets. We need to lock them in. That's going to be good for our economy, which means it's going to be good for you. You can't explain that kind of stuff no. to the masses. You, you, you need to dumb stuff down for the masses. Just so Simplistic yeah. ideas. Soviet's bad. America good. Yeah. Hulk smash. <laughs> you, you know, you need you to- You get a job. Yeah. Yeah. You need to, you need to dumb it right down. Right. And so that was the tricky thing. Like for, for the Americans- at the time, you know, you had the camp that, that wanted to invest in Europe via the Marshall Plan mm-hmm. and then they wanted to protect it militarily. Right. You had the camp that was arguing against that for domestic political reasons, if nothing else. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was much easier to argue the uh, against case because that was America's tradition, yes. isolationism. Always. Right? Yes. To, to argue for a permanent military presence in Europe uh, during peacetime, there's a big, big leap of imagination Disconnect. for Americans yes. in 1947, 1948. Yeah, because why? 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 And you can't tell them why. Too convoluted. Well, you know, Churchill had already given his uh, Iron Curtain speech, and you go, well, Soviets are bad, but still Americans are like, well, hold on, these were our allies. Yeah, just uh, yesterday. Fucking yesterday. <laughs> yeah. They were our allies. Now you're saying they're the bad guys. I'm like, so let me catch my breath yeah. here for a second. <laughs> our old friend John Foster Dulles right. at this stage uh, was, you know, this is 47, 48, was mm-hmm. possibly going to be the next Secretary of State if the Republicans won the White House right. in 1948. Mm-hmm. He had been sent to Paris for the Foreign Minister Conference uh, by the senior Republicans. Mm-hmm. And he left France convinced that they needed America's help. Now, key thing for everyone to understand is that France and Italy, at the time, 1947, 1948, were beset by labor strikes. Oh, yes. um, Very strong communist parties Mm -hmm. in both countries. Yes. 
Like there was in Greece. We've talked about the one in Greece and how the British and the Americans, primarily the British, had to go in and shut down the communists in Greece. Through violence. Uh, same thing was happening in France and Italy. Yeah. And Dulles was convinced that these countries needed immediate uh, military policing support from the United States. The 1947 strikes in France mm-hmm. were uh, there was a series of uh, large, very large insurrectionist labour actions uh, across the country, mm. partly uh, against post-war wage stagnation, Right. But partly against Western capitalism, like people still remembered the Great Depression. Oh yeah, um, you know they remembered that capitalism kept failing them time and time again, yes. and uh, you know they they w- were fighting for a better a better system. They wanted a fairer system. You know, a lot of intellectuals that had uh, read their Marx and Engels and their Lenin, and they 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 were passionate about. Um, uh, you know the the idea that there's a better way of distributing and managing the wealth of a country. Yeah. So these um, strikes in France started in April 1947 at the largest Renault mm. factory in the country. Ten thousand out of thirty thousand workers went on strike. Good God. And initially, the French Communist Party, the PCF. Mm-hmm wasn't involved in the strikes. Oh. It's, it reminds me of, like, Russia in 1917 when the strikes happened and Lenin and Trotsky and Stalin were all out of the country at the time and they were like, wait, not- you can't do that. I'm your, I'm your leader. <laughs> wait wait till I get back. Let me get there. Yeah, yeah. The Communist Party had nothing to do with it. They, they were, in fact, against it initially. Mm-hmm. Then they got on board. Right. And that led to the May crises, as they're known in France and Italy. Mm-hmm. But these are the French ones I'm talking about, right. um, which saw all of the communist officials expelled from the government of France. Dang. They had this uh, tripartisme thing going on at the time. It was like this alliance between various political parties. And um, they kicked the communists out. Mm. Uh, there was this um, rumour going around. Uh, that uh, came to the attention of the French president at the time, Ramadier, that there was going to be a major insurrection. Um, But uh, at the time, the French Communist Party was quite powerful. One in every four voters. Yeah. 25% of the vote was going to the French Communist Party between 1946 and 1956. You know, they were getting very large percentages of the votes in France, very popular. Yes. Um, And Ramadier, the president, had received warnings from the US ambassador Jefferson Caffrey Mm -hmm. that any communists in the French government would prevent them from getting Marshall Plan money. Is that the carrot Um, or the stick? Because it feels like it's a little of both. Look, we've got something pretty sweet for you, and I hate not to give it to you. It's up to you. Yeah. It's up to you. Yeah. yeah, but and you know the uh, so you're Romania, you're the president. You've got communists in your government that were elected. Yes, in a democracy, legally elected, and that was the legally fear. elected. Yes, and 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 the the Americans are saying, well, you got to get rid of them we out of your care. government. He goes, hold on, we don't they care. were voted in a democracy. Yeah, don't nope, care about nope, democracy. Nope. <laughs> democracy, democracy. You want the money, you got to get rid of these guys. So, right. <clears throat> Romania is trying to figure out. 
what to do about mm-hmm. this. Caffrey wrote in his diary, I told Ramadier no communists in government or else. Damn. Like Joe Biden. <clears throat> what does the or else mean? Well, uh, yeah, like Joe Biden no, to Ukraine. Exactly. No cash. No cash for yeah. you. you. You need more Nazis, Biden said to Zelensky. You need more <laughs> Nazis in your government or else. So Ramadier began looking for some sort of a pretext to purge the communists from the government. Right. And then uh, as these strikes were happening across 1947, a rumour started circulating amongst the government that uh, the communists were plotting a coup for the 1st of May. There you go. And the military was secretly mobilised and... He expelled all of the communist ministers from the government um, on the 5th of May, 1947. Mm. Now, the the strikes um, continued, though, Mm -hmm. across France. In September, there was one that was sort of more uh, run by the common form, more generalised strike, which explicitly denounced the Marshall Plan and the conditions involved with accepting Marshall Plan funds. There were 3 million strikers. It's estimated that 23,371,000 working days were lost to strikes in France in 1947. Damn. Um, So it was a a big deal being led by the, the communist and socialist parties in France. Yeah. But but if I and, if I could real quick, I mean you're right. Even though the war was a horrible thing, it's over with, and people's memories go back to before the war, and they're like, it's it's going to happen again in some form, or some fashion. Money's going to become worthless, or it's going to lose value. We're all going to lose jobs. We don't have benefits, and yeah, I mean they they remember this stuff, and we're going to see. I think it's it's probably going to be in the next episode. But there's going to be a little tiny country in Europe that has a better social net. Then in 1919, 1920, that America has today in 2022. So these people were looking for for some security from their governments. And I don't think they were asking for too much, but it did not fit the needs of the governments of the various countries. Mm. Sorry. So these strikes continued into 1948, and this is the sort of problem John Foster Dulles is worried about. Like, what, right. what happens if we give these countries billions of dollars of credit and exactly. then they get taken over by the communists exactly. and join um, the Russian trading bloc instead, the Soviet bloc? Yeah. Uh, what do we do? Yeah. By the way, these strikes in France were broken using covert support from the CIA. Of course. Uh, the, even earlier, the CIA or the OSS, whatever it actually was at the time, had begun funding and arming the Guerini crime family, <laughs> a.k.a. the Corsican Mafia in Marseille, Jesus. Um, to assault communist picket lines and harass union officials. Mm-hmm. And there were several striking workers who got murdered by the Guerinis at this time. They were also... The Guarini crime family were Lucky Luciano's partners for shipping heroin into the United States at the time. Jesus. So, uh, yeah, we've talked, I think, on the War on Drugs series, we talked about the CIA's involvement with Corsican Mafia right. and, yeah, or, during World War II yeah. and all that kind of stuff. Who was the Australian that was um, leading strikes? He was a big guy. I think it was in California. And literally preachers and policemen and 
whatever else, were actually encouraging violence against those who were striking. And people did die. People were killed because they were striking for better wages or, or for whatever. But, but I mean, when you have priests on the side, on, on the far right, on the side of the cops and the side of the politicians, you know something's gone wonky. But yeah, any means necessary to win, that's what's going on here right now. Harry Bridges. There we go. That's Thank you. talking about. Thank you. Yeah, um, Victor Santoki, my uh, oh, yeah. dear departed yeah. friend in LA, was the guy who first told me about uh, Harry Bridges. That's right. Rest in peace. Yeah. So um, that's this is what Dulles is worried about. Mm-hmm. Oh, and, and the CIA is involved. Yeah, you know, we believe in uh, democracy and the right of the people <laughs> to choose, unless they choose the wrong thing, right. and then then, we'll fuck them up. then we need to get involved. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Meanwhile, in Italy, oh, yeah. on the 1st of May, 1947, right. the nation was thrown into crisis Why? by the murder of 11 peasants, including four children, oh, Jesus. at an International Workers' Day parade in Palermo by Salvatore Giuliano, right. uh, the um, great uncle of um, your own Mr. Giuliani, my good friend. Your cigar um, buddy. My cigar buddy, Giuliani. Right. Yeah. Rudy! <laughs> Ruru. Was Ruru, this, as I used to call him back in the day. Was this, um, how should I put this delicately, remover of problems in Italy? Was he being paid by someone or was he under the direction of anyone? Or was he just a patriot? No, he was, yeah, he was just a patriot who didn't like uh, commies. Right. Um Salvatore Giuliano was an Italian bandit, not part of the mafia as such, I don't think. He was just running his own little Sicilian operation. Gotcha. Uh, Had a gang. This is known as the uh, Portella della Ginestra Ginestra, uh, Massacre. Mm -hmm. May 1st, 1947, hundreds of poor peasants gathered at the Portella della Ginestra, which is about three kilometres from the town of Piana dei Albanese, right. named after Australia's uh, current Prime Minister, Anthony Albanese. And, uh, they were on their way to San Giuseppe Giotto for uh, a, a Labor Day parade. Mm-hmm. At 10.15 in the morning, the uh, Communist Party secretary began to address the crowd when gunfire broke out later determined that machine guns had been fired from the surrounding hills as well as by men on horseback. 11 people were killed, including four children. Jesus. 27 people were wounded, including a little girl who had her jaw shot off. I, I can't. Jesus Christ. Collateral now the attack, damage. Collateral damage. The attack was attributed to Giuliano. Mm-hmm. Um, he had wanted to punish local left for their recent election results. The massacre took place 12 days after the surprise victory by Blocco del Popolo, the People's Bloc. It was a coalition of Italian Communist Party and Socialist Parties mm-hmm. um, in the elections for the Constituent Assembly. Right. The People's Bloc obtained 29% of the vote. The Christian Democrats got 20% and the other parties came third and fourth. So... Again, like in France, yeah. the socialists and communist parties in Italy were very popular in yes. the late 40s. Uh, now, Giuliano, before this massacre, Giuliano had been sort of perceived as a bit of a Robin Hood 
in oh, Sicily. Yeah. He would um, steal from or even kidnap wealthy Sicilians and help impoverished Sicilians. Right. Um, his most famous robbery happened in 1944, the robbery of the Duchess of Pratameno. Right. Uh, Lesser Prada. He and his men snuck into her estate unnoticed, mm-hmm. and then he was in her bedroom right. before she knew what was occurring. He kissed her hand, oh, that's nice. bowed, showed respect for her noble status, right. then demanded she hand over all her jewellery. <laughs> when she refused, he threatened to kidnap her children. So she handed the loot over. He took a diamond ring from her hand, which he wore for the rest of his life. Oh, classic. Then he borrowed her copy of John Steinbeck's Indubious Battle, uh, which he then read and returned with a, a thank you note a week later. Class act. <laughs> class. And he was an educated thief. So good for him. Yeah, class act until he until, killed a bunch of yeah, children and peasants. Yeah. And um, then they put a bounty on his head. It was like... Uh, Thirteen thousand two hundred dollars in nineteen forty-seven. So about I don't know one hundred fifty, two hundred grand in today's right. money. Yeah, offered by the Italian government for his capture, it became a national scandal, and the communist-controlled Italian General Confederation of Labor called a general strike in protest mm. uh, against the massacre, mm-hmm. and six million workers across Italy went on strike. Uh, so. the, the communist leaders were, you know, getting up and giving speeches. Right. <clears throat> the media at the time were reporting rumours that there was going to be a civil war led by the communists Damn. in Italy. Right. Yeah, they want something new. And, Sorry, go ahead. And the g- Italian government used that as a pretext to kick out all of the left-wing ministers from their cabinet on the 31st of May uh, all the Italian Socialist Party and the Communist Party are members of cabinet. So, again, like in France, mm-hmm. Italy knows that in order to get Marshall Plan money, they need to get rid of the communists and the socialists out of government. Right. Uh, was there any connection mm-hmm. between that and Giuliano's uh, massacre and the, the you know then the protests and then using that as a pretext? We don't know. Right. Um, Giuliani never said he was assassinated a few years later himself. Um, so we'll never know. But, yeah. you know, the, so this is the thing about even the Marshall Plan, leaving aside NATO. Mm-hmm. Um, when you hear American defenders of the Marshall Plan of NATO say, well, uh, the countries uh, wanted to be involved in this. They they asked to get involved. Yeah. Uh, you know. Yeah, some of them some did. Of the them. ones that weren't crushed, right. oppressed, wanted to be in it. Did. Yeah. yeah. The, the ones that were pro-American and were able to, you know, kick out the democratically elected, by the way, democratically yeah. elected members of their government that on America's orders or threats, yeah. they had to kick out of their own governments. That is what we're talking about here with the Marshall Plan. It's not the, yeah. uh, you know, rainbows and unicorns uh, version of the story right. that it gets taught in yeah. civics class it, in, in America. It's the details, yeah. and the devil's always in the details. The United States and the UK 
thought anything involving communists had to be part of a sinister plan by Stalin to take over the world. Like, but Like Korea. Yeah. Yeah, sorry. Yeah, it couldn't just be seen as a domestic situation. Yes. It had to be seen as this uh, grand, right. evil, cunning, uh, Dr. Evil plan <clears throat> to take over the world. Democratic Senator J. William Fulbright of Arkansas, right. uh, he of the uh, Fulbright uh, Scholarship. Which I never got. Go ahead. Go ahead. Again, we're all <laughs> shocked. Um, speaking at the University of Toronto warned that the continent in its present fragmentary form is a large power vacuum which Russia is trying to fill. Let us be under no illusions. If Russia obtains control of Western Europe, the control of Africa, the Near East and the Middle East will fall into her lap like a ripe plum. They should be our ripe plums, not their ripe plums. our plums. Our plums. Mm, Reach down. My plums, <laughs> feel it in my plums. Here's an idea. No one really wants a master, whether it's a political master, an economic master. It's not like the Europeans are going, oh, and someone, someone take care of us. You know, the, the, the Europeans are intelligent, complicated people, just like anyone else. But they are certainly in desperate straits right now. And they don't want to be in the middle of this boxing match between America and the Soviet Union. But they are. And so you have some that pick one side and some that pick the other. Um, and it's going to get dirty and it's going to keep getting dirty. And, and America can say that we, you know, plausible deniability, we didn't know, but at the end at the very, very end of the Marshall plan, there's little things like this, not little, but, uh, things, violent things like this that are happening. And we can't just pretend that we did not know where it had, or it had nothing to do with us, you know, live and learn. On January 13th, 1948, the British ambassador to the United States, Lord Inverchapel, good name, presented a proposal to George Marshall, right. which insisted on US military support for recipients of the Marshall Plan, but it had to go through the State Department, and that meant it had to go across the desk of our old friend George Keenan Thompson. Right. Um, who, before he was the longest-running cast member yeah. on Saturday Night Live, yeah. was the director of the State Department's policy planning staff. And Cannon had serious objections yes. to the Inver Chapel proposal. He didn't really like the idea of a military union in Europe. Now, to remind uh, pl- people playing at home, um, or maybe new players to the game, right. of who George Kennan was, uh, had been based, part of the State Department, he was a diplomat, had been based in Moscow for many, many years Mm -hmm. um, before World War II. Right. Um, Was considered one of the leading experts on the Soviet Union Mm -hmm. and on Stalin, on Russia. Yes. In the US State Department. Wrote the X telegram or the long telegram um, after World War II that became the... The, the philosophical basis right. for the idea of containment like of that. the Soviet Union. So he's considered sort of the godfather of the Cold War. Mm-hmm. But the, the way that America executed this plan uh, yeah. did not meet with his liking. He yeah. was a critic of America's uh, 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 understanding or lack thereof right. of Russia and his plan. So he wasn't... He wasn't a big fan of the idea of a military uh, involvement by the U.S. And later on, many years later, Mm -hmm. I was reading his memoirs uh, uh, last week, and 
He wrote this uh, about this period. The Russians had no intention of attacking Western Europe in those post-war years and thought we must have known it. Right. Because they'd been fucking telling you this for years, but you didn't believe them. For this reason, the manner in which NATO was formed and presented to the Western public, i.e. as a response to the Soviet threat Mm -hmm. and as a deterrent to Soviet aggression, mystified them and caused them to search for some sinister hidden motive in our policy. Yes. This effect had been reinforced by our steps toward the rearmament of Germany and Japan and by the manner in which we ourselves had interpreted and presented our action in Korea and by Leninist doctrine, which told them that the social foundation of the capitalist order disintegrated in the West the leaders of the exploiting class, i.e. the Western governments, would go from one form of attack to other sharper forms of attack. Right. Um, Which is not a bad analysis of uh, Western imperialism. Uh, Now, Cannon, before he died in the uh, Mm mid-1990s, late 1990s, 96, 97, was also very critical of Bill Clinton's stated intention to expand... NATO after the collapse of the USSR. Yeah. Cannon, you know, right at the end of his life was saying, this is bad. Yeah. Russians aren't going to like this. They're going to see it as a threat and they're going to have to eventually respond to that threat, et cetera, et cetera, which has, you know, led to the current goings on right. in Ukraine. So Cannon, uh, not, a, not a fan of uh, the, the idea of NATO from the very get-go. Yeah. If I could real quick, we, when we were doing the CIA series, we joked uh, that the CIA was inept to the point where it could not get an agent, an asset inside the Iron Curtain. And so we literally knew nothing of what was going on. Um, and so... But at the, at the same token, one of the great tragedies of the beginning of the Cold War is that the Soviets didn't get us. They're like, um, we don't want to invade you. We can't invade you. However, we cannot stress this enough. World War One, World War Two, the whole question of Poland, the Polish corridor, this is a matter of life and or death to us. This is not about politics. This is not about economics. This is literally our existence, our lives, our family, our children, generations to come. We have to lock down something like Poland in some form or fashion because clearly Europe can't control itself and it's only a matter of time before some other army comes at us. So we didn't get Soviet Union, <clears throat> the Soviet Union, but they didn't, they could not understand our anger, our fear of them. And the reason we were so angry and fearful of them, besides the economic matters was we didn't understand them. We didn't get them. We didn't really want to get them, but we did not know what was going on. When you have two sides that literally do not get the other side, they don't understand what's going on. You're going to have nothing but distrust and fear. And so there suddenly are no rules. You do whatever you have to to win because you can only imagine the worst thing possible coming from the other side. So nothing but a lack of communication and distrust and, and fear is kind of what helps launch the Cold War. And this, and we're seeing it here as well. The, and the Americans are actually going to ask the Soviets to join the Marshall Plan, knowing that they can't, knowing that even if they wanted to, Congress would never approve it. So we, we are maneuvering the Soviets into a certain 
position where they look like the bad guy. We get, but yet we get to claim victimhood and they're the bad guys and we have to stop them because they want to take over the world. Why America is writing checks and taking over the world in a different way. So very convoluted, but yeah, so the Marshall Plan is like just like, like you were saying earlier, what the uh, British foreign uh, minister said, this is truly the beginning of the Western Bloc. And if you have a Western Bloc, you're damn sure going to have an Eastern Bloc and they're going to stare at each other. Hopefully no one uses weapons or nuclear weapons at any point. But that's, that's how it gets started. On the 22nd of January, 1948, uh, Ernest Bevins, foreign minister of the United Kingdom, mm-hmm. gave a very influential speech to the House of Commons. Um, I read the speech. Um, Good speech. He gave good speech. Yeah. Ernie Bevins. uh, (laughs) He even dealt with his hecklers uh, pretty pretty well. Did you read the speech? I I read some of the, uh, the, 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 when he would fire back at the criticisms and I would not want to debate this guy. He was, he was tearing them a new one. Brilliant. Mm. Yeah. Um, so he gave a speech. Basically, he warned that the Soviets were going to try and influence Western Europe to become communist and they needed to stop them. Right. Why? Because something, something <laughs> wicked this way comes. Because uh, oh, I don't like it. I don't fucking like it. Yeah. Yeah. He said, uh, Britain, look, yeah, yes, Britain it was involved in Greece. Yeah. Uh, in, you know, helping determine the outcome of the elections in Greece to make sure that the Greeks uh, voted properly mm-hmm. um, and didn't get any crazy ideas into their heads. Yeah. Um, and he said, look, we would, we would love to get out of Greece. Trust me, yeah. there's nothing more we would love than to disengage yeah. out of Greece. But gosh darn it. <laughs> Those uh, sneaky Soviets are still trying to support the Greek communists, so I guess we need to stay involved yeah. too. Don't want to. Um, oh, have to. Look, it's yeah, a damn shame. We would love to bring shame. our boys home, yeah. but we just need to keep them Jesus. there to make sure the Greeks yeah. Yeah, don't get any silly ideas. Right. Um, what do the Greeks know about democracy anyway? <laughs> um, now, he, in this speech, he also talked about the idea of a European Union, Ooh. a union of West European countries. Right. He talked about the Marshall Plan, but the, the main thrust of his speech was that in order to rebuild Western Europe, some kind of Western European Union, they needed to defend Europe from the USSR right, and more domestic communist movements. Now, this is a big deal because up until this point, uh, yeah, the British had not wanted to point the finger at the USSR <laughs> yes, too much. Right. Don't piss them uh, off. Like the Treaty of Dunkirk that they signed with France that you mentioned early on, mm-hmm. it was all about uh, an alliance to defend themselves against Germany in yeah. the future. Yeah. But most historians like Mark Trachtenberg at uh, University of California and others say that, well, Using Germany, it was really just a, a, a pretext Placeholder. for the Russia, yes. the USSR. Exactly. It was like, yeah, well, well, we say Germany, we mean the USSR. We just don't want to say the USSR because yeah. we're still trying to figure out if we can all get along. Yeah. And they were still, you know, meeting, having foreign ministers meetings That's about the right. future of Germany yeah. and all this kind of stuff. Don't, it still hadn't settled. The dust hadn't settled yeah. yet on that whole thing. Don't poke the bear. But yeah. Well, Bevan did poke it. Bevan came out and said, we need to defend ourselves against the Soviet Union and the communists. He said that Britain intended to take the lead in the creation of this new union, which they saw as an extension of the Treaty of Dunkirk. Right. 
and um, his speech was received well, both at home and in the USA. Mm-hmm. Uh, so Bevan tried to close the deal, and yes. and and you know the the way that scholars talk about this speech, it was directed at the USA. Mm-hmm. Um, it was basically a way of him communicating directly with the US public, saying, you know, we want to build a, a better Europe, a prosperous Europe, but we really need America's support right. against the evil communists. We can't do it without you. And see, this is where some of the, the nuances come in, because before the speech, well, first of all, the Dunkirk um, Treaty is France is still worried. France's main concern is a re- resurgent Germany. So here's what Britain does. Britain goes, okay, look, for the next 50 years, if you were attacked by Germany, we will come in. We will put troops on the ground on the, on the continent, and we will help you. Um, but some of the other countries like um, uh, the Dutch and Belgium are like, whoa, 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 Germany is currently occupied. Germany is not the problem. Quit talking about them. Be real. Tell everybody what you're really thinking. And, of course, like you just said, it's like, no, we can't openly, publicly say that we're afraid of the Soviets because that might piss them off or it might piss off the communists in these various European countries. And so it it is Bevan who's like, we need a union, but we need the Americans a part of this union. And it would really be nice if they would let the British run it because the British are used to telling people what to do. And so he's, he's being clever. He, he's finally put it out there. It's like, okay, the, 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 it's out of the bag now. We're afraid of the Soviet Union. Um, but the Americans are still like, again, we're not exactly all that keen on some kind of military uh, uh, treaty during peacetime. So it, it's a delicate um, balance that he's got going on. Some people in America like what he said. Some people in America didn't like what he said. But the point is... America's going to figure out very quickly, one, they have to placate the French with their fear of the Germans, even though at this point it's unfounded. The French are thinking about the future. Britain wants to be in charge of it, but America is the big boy on the block now because, you know, we, uh, because of our industrial might. So you have these various factions all trying to get into certain positions, but unless they can all agree... This is not going to happen. So someone's got to give somewhere to make this happen. And uh, this is just... Bevan's opening salvo to try to finally, like you said, not only put this out there, but also close the deal very quickly. And he almost does it, but he doesn't quite because there's enough people in America going, yeah, I, I still don't. I still don't know about this. We'll, we'll, let's just wait and see what happens. And George Marshall, the secretary of state, is one of them. Mm. Yeah, Bevan tries to close the deal um, after his speech is received well, and he's having talks with the US, and he says, while he recognises the difficulty Mm -hmm. that the United States might have in committing forces to Europe during peacetime, he said that if the two nations join in a general commitment to go to war with an aggressor, it is probable that the potential victims will feel sufficiently reassured to refuse to embark on a fatal policy of appeasement. Ah, right. This goes back to that, and I didn't really, I didn't really research this. Um, did you run across what, what was the expression? The spiritual aspect of a treaty, yeah, it's a spiritual alliance, a spiritual alliance. Exactly right. So it's like, mm. yeah, let me give you something that's going to give you hope, like give you, you and faith. me, exactly. 
Exactly. Spiritual and sexual alliance. That's 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 how what the, he Bevan wanted. And heads up, if you ever meet Cam, the first one leads to the second one. So so watch yourself. But anyway, no, it that's was the, it was that idea. Whole purpose of spiritual <laughs> spirituality and religion, yeah, Ray, is to get 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 one laid. Get I laid. keep telling you, that's yeah, why okay. I started my own religion, the cult of Cam. I would like to. I would like. I joined Uncle Cam's corner, but I still got laid. So either way, it's all good. But no, I love this spiritual aspect. He's like, I I haven't got you people to write down. Excuse me, I haven't gotten you people to sign any documents yet. But I think we can all agree we need some kind of gathering, some kind of understanding, some kind of treaty. I'm just trying to work out the details, and he's trying to bring the Americans along. It's just going to take a little longer than what he thinks it should. Hmm. But the U.S. State Department had a schism yeah. uh, between the people that wanted military involvement in Europe and the people who didn't. The people who didn't, we talked about this, Kennan. Right. It's also Charles Bolin. Right. Um, we've talked about him in, in recent episodes, sorry, past episodes. Charles Bolin was another American diplomat, ambassador, and another expert on the Soviet Union. Mm-hmm. He'd, he'd lived there, been the ambassador there for, for many, many years. Right. Funny that the the two guys who knew most about the USSR were the ones against NATO. Um, you know, not cool, guys. The, not cool. Yeah. yeah, including the guy that basically started the Cold War, Kennan, was against exactly. NATO. Uh, other voices in the USA who were against the Marshall Plan, we mentioned Henry Wallace before, mm-hmm. FDR's former Veep and Secretary of Agriculture, et cetera, et cetera. He said that both the Marshall Plan and the Truman Doctrine should be scrapped because they were provocations to the USSR. Um, Herbert Hoover, Hoover, Herbert Hoover, um, former former president, urged Congress to scrap the Marshall Plan. He wanted to replace it with a different model of aid, right. something that was more open-ended and not tied down as much Street. with as many stipulations yes. Yes. as uh, the Marshall Plan had in it, or the ERP, as it was known, had in it. Mm-hmm. Robert A. Taft, who was the most influential Republican in the Senate, mm-hmm. attacked it for being too large and for failing to have an administrator independent of the State Department. Ooh. Uh, glad America learned that lesson and, and now, you know, whenever they uh, raise billions and billions of dollars to send to foreign countries, it's uh, everyone knows exactly where every penny Absolutely. is gone. Every pallet. And none of it just disappears into uh, yeah. the mists. Yeah. <laughs> and Taft is going to run for president 48, so he's a little self-serving as well. Everyone is Everybody. self-serving. Yeah. I mean, everyone's got an agenda, of course. But my point is just that uh, there were very, very uh, senior people in the United States in terms of politicians as well as thinkers mm-hmm. who uh, and experts on Russia who were against the Marshall Plan and against NATO at right. the time. But then the event that really lit a fire under their asses is a bit like... It's a bit like George W. Bush and Dick Cheney uh, and Rumsfeld sitting around after they got elected yeah. uh, in uh, 2000 yeah. going, God, you know, we really, really want to invade Iraq. Need it. What would be really great yeah. is if yeah. just something big happened, if something really big happened that – you know, shook gave us an yes. excuse to invade yes. Iraq. Wouldn't that be great? People would beg Gee, us to invade. Wonder, beg us. Yeah, yeah. I wonder. Like if we could just, if we know anyone, mm. make some phone calls, mm. see who's 
Who's up? Who's awake? Who's up? I remember when um, Bush said, you know, I, I just I just wanted to be the education president. That's all I wanted. And then this horrible thing came along. I, I guess I'll have to do this, uh, you know, war thing. But he wanted to be the education. Anyways, please continue. So in this case, the uh, their 9-11 was the communist coup d'etat in Czechoslovakia that happened on the 24th of February, 1948. Yes. Shocked the world, especially disturbing to the United States because of its very close history with Czechoslovakia since the country was founded after World War I or sort of towards the end of World War I. Mm -hmm. Um, All concerns about offending the USSR uh, disappeared overnight. The worst has come true. So what, what the fuck? Yeah. Like, this is a point in time where the Chinese Civil War is still going on. Yes. Not really bedded down yet by the communists. Mm-hmm. It's close, though. Right. Um, and, but, you know, this is a world before Vietnam, before Ho Chi Minh. Yeah. It's, a, it's a world before Korea. It's in a world before Fidel Castro. So to see another country fall to communists yes. in a coup d'etat... Yes was, I mean, we, they'd had Russia, fine, mm-hmm. and, you know, the, the, the Soviet, other Soviet countries at, at that time, but um, to see another country fall to a communist coup d'etat, one that had been very closely uh, associated with the West yes. uh, for, for decades, uh, was a massive shock. And Bevan and others... Uh, said, okay, well, now is the time for immediate action. No more dilly-dallying. Bevan said that he feared Europe was now in a critical period of six to eight weeks, which would decide the fate of Europe. So I think uh, we'll end it there. When we come back next time, we'll have to talk about Czechoslovakia and the communist coup of 1948. Curtain has descended across the continent.